Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. We are so excited to be with you for Francis and I. This is Holy Week. Uh, I hope maybe some of you have an opportunity to be listening to this program during Holy Week because, frankly, the topic is uh, quite intended to be uh, part of our Holy Week journey, and it's an important part of uh, our purification on the spiritual journey to what we hope will be uh, a wonderful Easter for all of you and a great blessing in this, uh, this uh, most holy season of our uh, church year. And let me begin by um, reintroducing my co-host here in studio today, Francis Harry. Francis, how are you? I'm feeling very blessed and um, praying for all, all of our listeners and for you, Mark, that um, this Holy Week be one filled with graces and blessings to bring us into the heart of Jesus. Well, I know you want to uh, begin, as we always do, Francis, and I so appreciate it, uh, leading us off in prayer. So let me invite you to do that, please. I selected a prayer from St. Raphael Kalinowski, who is a discussed Carmelite um, priest, and um, he uh, was in the salt mines, I believe, uh, suffered a great deal. So uh, I think this is appropriate for Holy Week and for our discussion. So let us get recollected. And let us pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Jesus, hope of suffering humanity, our refuge and our strength, whose light pierces the black clouds that hang over our stormy sea, enlighten our eyes so that we can direct ourselves toward you, who are our harbor. Guide our bark with the rudder of the nails of your cross lest we drown in the storm. With the arms of this cross, rescue us from the turbulent waters and draw us to yourself, our only repose, morning star, son of justice. For with our eyes obscured by tears, we can catch a glimpse of you there on the shores of our heavenly homeland. Redeemed by you, we pray, save us for the sake of your holy name and all this through Mary, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Francis. Well, I uh, want to uh, begin by going back and just reiterating, Francis, uh, for our listeners, the topic um, of discussion, and most especially, I guess, the three navigational techniques. And I will say, if you have not listened to the first of this two-part series, we think it'll be a two-part series, um, I encourage you to do that. Really, much of this will not uh, be very beneficial to anybody who hasn't listened to our first hour of conversation, Francis. I think you would agree. Right. And then it's at CarmeliteConversations.com that you can find our podcast and broadcast. <laughs> so we invite you to uh, go there and visit. We spoke about last week for us a um, um, the, the spiritual journey and the means of navigation. This is what I most want to emphasize. Certainly, I don't want to recover all of the ground from last week, but I want to just reemphasize these three means of navigation. And they are our resting in the bosom of the Lord. And Francis uh, uh, identified it quite correctly as adoration. That is our time in, in adoration, very deliberately, uh, before the Eucharist, if we can achieve that, but any time that we set aside for adoring our Lord. And this um, is analogous in this Holy Week to John, John the Beloved, resting his head in the bosom of the Lord on uh, the evening of the Last Supper. The second we identified as embracing our Lord in the night. 
And this will become very pertinent as we talk about uh, the Last Supper and the Garden of Gethsemane, as we will this week. But I want to uh, reemphasize here, Francis, our discussion around night vigils and praying at night. Uh, there's really not enough time in this program to, to go into this, though I suspect Francis and I will talk about it in future programming. Uh, most especially in these trying times in which we live, the importance of our praying in the middle of the night, and we'll talk about why that's so important. Thirdly is silencing, and I'm talking primarily about silencing of the faculties. The normal way in which we try to perceive our world and understand our surroundings, we will discover that as we continue to mature in our spiritual journey, uh, those um, senses as a means of determining uh, our relationship with the Lord and understanding how to interact with our uh, brothers and sisters become less uh, sort of uh, faithful to us in, in helping us understand. And the Lord, in fact, purifies those and then moves us into a deeper interior purification of spirit, which calls on us to rely on an interior voice rather than our external uh, hearing or reading or, or other forms of um, sense perception for understanding our world. And before this begins to sound too academic, uh, I just want to reemphasize, these are the basic principles of Carmelite spirituality. Resting in the bosom of the Lord, adoring Him, uh, spending time with Him, most especially at night, and silence. These are not academic uh, principles. These are very basic principles to Carmelite uh, the Carmelite charism and Carmelite spirituality. And to anybody who wants to grow on the spiritual journey. And so now what we'd like to do is take these three navigational tools of the spiritual life, which um, Mark so aptly uh, put together for us since he was a navigator. Um, we'd like to take those tools and apply it to uh, the uh, life of St. Peter, uh, especially here in the time of Christ's Passion. So we, we're going to start with a scripture passage from John 13, verse 23. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Remember what we'd read earlier in the wonderful book, uh, In Sinu Yesu, In the Bosom of the Lord. John here is already the contemplative. John the Beloved has already entered the contemplative stage in his relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not true for the other disciples, nor is it true even for Peter. Now, in just a few verses later, Matthew 26, uh, 21, is going to, in, in uh, the, the words of the Lord, uh, identify uh, the uh, reality that at some point uh, in this very evening, um, someone will betray our Lord. In fact, our Lord says, one of you will betray me. Again, that's Matthew 26, 21. Now, Peter hears this, of course, uh, but he does not speak directly to Jesus to ask him um, what, has, uh, what, what the meaning of this is. In fact, he asked John to ask Jesus. And I think this is a recognition of John's intimacy, of John's love for Jesus, and, and, and it was evident to Peter. So even though Peter was, was recognized as the leader of, of the group of disciples, uh, still it was John who had that intimate relationship that was already established. Right. Peter is the leader as identified by Christ, as pointed out by Christ. And don't miss that point because it will become increasingly important as we continue our, our dialogue here. And Francis is absolutely right. 
don't also miss the analogy. John resting on the bosom of our Lord would literally have heard our Lord's heartbeat. He might well have felt our Lord's heartbeat. And it is an indication of the fact that John's heart had already begun to be transformed in a contemplative way with the will of our Lord. Now, it doesn't mean John is perfected at this point. He still has a great deal of struggle to go through, but he has begun to listen interiorly, whereas Peter has not. Now, we referred to, in our last program, uh, this uh, idea of praying at night, and I titled it, Night in the Garden of Good and Evil. And I want to just give a, a uh, sort of an analogy here as to what happens, because we've moved beyond the Last Supper. The disciples and our Lord have passed through the Kid Kidron Valley. This is what Scripture records. And they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. And a great deal happens in that garden that I want us to uh, sort of reflect on. But in order to do it, much like we did with our crusader, who will come back in our story later, uh, I want to sort of give you a picture of what it is that may have happened in that garden. It, it, it doesn't have to uh, uh, be factual. This is simply a narrative, but it does give us some understanding of what may have happened uh, in that garden. So you'll recall Christ went off by himself. He asks the disciples to pray with him, um, but of course they don't, do they, Francis? They fall asleep. <laughs> well, and I, I remember reading somewhere they were so grieved that, yes, uh, they fell asleep. And so, I mean, I'm compassionate with them, but at the same time, this is when Jesus is encouraging them to stay awake. And this is where we get the, the lines, can you not stay awake one hour with me? And, you know, of course, during this Holy Week, many of the Catholic churches are having special hours of adoration, asking people to spend an hour with him. So Christ is in the midst of the beginning, at least, of his passion. He's uh, so oftentimes portrayed kneeling against a rock and, and he's uh, sweating profusely. In fact, they say even in Scripture that uh, uh, drops of blood came forth from him as though it were, you know, sweat, perspiration. So we know he's in intense, intense prayer. And I want to, again, just present this possible narrative where in the midst of this, well, some distance off, his own apostles are asleep. They're not praying in the night. You see the importance of it. Instead, they're um, uh, taking their rest, if you will, when Christ has asked them to, to be by his side. In the midst of that, we can imagine that around Christ, these gray images begin to present themselves in the uh, shadows of the light cast where Christ is kneeling and praying. And these gray shadows um, have within themselves uh, a number of uh, clear marks of uh, a deterioration, a woundedness, if you will. And I refer to these as uh, perhaps our uh, external obsessions, whatever it is that we ourselves and each individual soul has to discern this, uh, have as um, our passions, what John refers to as, St. John of the Cross refers to as the passions, and our external obsessions over whatever it is that attracts us in life. These ultimately then manifest themselves in interior wounds. And I use the analogy to pride here because ultimately all of our um, sin is a consequence of our pride. Pride being our lack of fidelity to the Lord and our desire to uh, possess for ourselves or to project ourselves onto the world in the way that we want to do it. Or to also just say, um, you know, trust in self rather than trusting in the Lord. Because I, I remember Father Stenison, uh, who's a Carmelite friar, wrote 
that all sin was ultimately a lack of trust in the Lord, which I yeah. thought was really uh, a, a great insight to ponder. Yeah, and, and, and within these souls then, if you recall the analogy in our first conversation to the use of swords, and I said, um, in the words of Father Maloney, I drew the analogy, swords in our life, these desires to project ourselves onto the world and our desire to be in control rather than trust in Christ are nothing other, and I'm quoting Father Maloney again, nothing other than the manifestations of our desire to show others and most especially ourselves that we are worthy of being loved. Listen, listeners, this is what we do. This is what the human experience is. We want to demonstrate to the world that we are worthy of being loved because we believe that if we can receive that love from somebody else, then we will be sort of validated um, within ourselves and we will find ourselves acceptable. We're going to discover in just a moment that that is fundamentally the wrong path. And, and in fact, the Lord's going to challenge us to go a different way. Now, I want to say um, that what happens to these souls is that Christ begins to recognize their presence. This is the, the, the process of his beginning of his passion. And we may think of these as purgatorial souls or uh, souls that have already passed, obviously, they're, they're, they're dead souls, uh, but they're entering the garden. Uh, and Christ sees in that moment, in that passion, in that experience, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Christ sees all of history, he sees the present, and he sees forward into all of the future. We know this from theological uh, uh, dissertations on the Garden experience. He sees all of human history. And he sees in these wounded souls the manifestation of their desire to project themselves onto the world. And Christ, recognizing their woundedness, stands, turns, and begins to approach them. And then they, uh, in their shame and in their um, uh, embarrassment, really, draw back. But Christ nonetheless approaches, and he embraces, let's just say, one of these souls. And the a, a, analogy I'd like to draw, the narrative I'd like you to imagine, is that as Christ embraces this soul, that darkness, that woundedness that's inherent in the interior of that person slowly begins to dissolve itself. And it, in fact, begins ultimately to leave that person. And as Christ releases his embrace of that person, there's left there on the, on the mar a mark on the person uh, 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 beginnings of light, the beginnings, if you will, of a tiny little flame. And as this person turns and begins to exit the garden beyond the light where, where Christ was and into the shadows, their image against the black and the dark backdrop of the garden in the shadows becomes brighter and brighter and brighter as they continue off into the night. This is our own experience when we embrace the Lord when we embrace him in adoration, when we embrace him in silence, and when we embrace him in the middle of the night. We take the time uh, uh, to be with him uh, in the night. Peter, however, does not receive this embrace because as we just discovered, Peter, like so many of the other apostles, is asleep. Simon Peter eventually, however, is roused from his sleep by the approach of the guards. This is the Praetorium Guard, and they are sent by the high priest. And of course, we know Judas has, um, has fulfilled his role in this evening's events. And now the guard has come into the garden to, uh, to take uh, our Lord. 
This does arouse Peter, and he runs to the defense of our Lord. You know, I want to point out something else I think, Francis, is very important here. We know that Peter is not a coward. We're about to discover that. Peter is not a weak individual. He's a very strong individual. Unfortunately, his strength is his weakness. Mm. Unlike Peter later who will tell us, or Paul later who will tell us, that within his weakness he finds his strength. Here, Peter's strength becomes his weakness. And something happens that demonstrates Peter's strength. Um, and I'd like you to read that for us, Francis. Well, it all starts with Peter's pride to dissuade Jesus from going through the crucifixion. So uh, we read from John 18.10, the first action of Simon Peter. So Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. So I, you have to imagine now the, the speculation is there may have been as many as a hundred guards that were sent to the garden and we've got 12 apostles and, and our Lord um, and Peter uh, thinks this would be a good time to engage a fight. <laughs> well, and you know I can understand the humanness of this reaction and, and not having the comprehension although the Lord is trying to tell him by what's going to come you know what to be expecting and they're not getting it. They're not understanding their 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 spiritual vision is still veiled. Very human, right? It's yes. very human. Let's figure out who the human person of Peter is. And uh, Francis began that conversation a second ago when she, she pointed out Peter has a history here. He has a long history of, of uh, sort of, you know, envisioning how this is going to play out with the Lord. And it manifests itself finally in the garden where he draws a sword against a hundred men, believing, we are told, that the Lord, having clearly demonstrated his power, will now in fact bring all of that power to bear. And this will be the start of what Peter has envisioned would be the kingdom. But he has a tainted view of the kingdom. But let's go back a little bit, Francis, if you'd take us through this, uh, on the scripture verses that put Peter's mindset uh, um, you know, forward so we understand how it is that Peter finds himself wielding this sword in the garden. So before the garden scene, right, Peter... I mean, Jesus is telling them, you know, that he's going to be uh, uh, betrayed and, they're, you know, they're going to uh, make him suffer and, and kill him. So, um, Peter's response, and I can understand this, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. So, he's kind of trying to take control. But at the same time, I think he's trying to express his loyalty to the Lord. But again, he's not, he's seeing as man sees. And Jesus is trying to open their eyes to how God sees. And, and following that exchange, of course, we know our Lord turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me for you're not setting your mind on God's interests, just what Francis just said, but man's interests. So you can see this exchange. Peter actually pulled Christ aside and was trying to counsel him. Like, let me tell you, young man, that this is not a good approach. You know, it's like I, for I have a better idea. like doubting that Jesus knew what was going to happen, how to deal with things. Well, in this regard, much like our crusader at the early part of our conversation last week, who ultimately laid down his sword, here Peter is wielding that crusader's sword in an attempt to both control the outcome of this exchange in the Garden of Gethsemane and get Jesus involved in it. And Jesus says what to him? Put your sword back into its place. For all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. And that's from Matthew 26, 52. 
Now, can you imagine Peter's reaction, Francis? So <laughs> this is, this is he's thinking, this is exactly what uh, I figured would play out. I brought my sword. I know the Lord has power. And I'm, I'm ready to engage here. And we're going to really get things going. And, and you have all this expectation. And then, then suddenly it's like, what? You don't want me to do this? And you, you referred to, to well, you, it as a, are yeah. you kidding me? Yeah, the, yeah. in theology. <laughs> I can relate to this because, you know, I see examples of this in my own spiritual journey, right? Yeah. So so you're saying, are you kidding me? You want me to do what? And you're not understanding, not comprehending. How can this be? How can this work out? And I'm thinking of the Blessed Mother, and she's, how can this be? And yet she gets an answer, and, you know, she, she acquiesces. And yet we're sitting here, you know, just struggling and like, we don't understand, and no, no, it should be what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to help you, Lord. And the Lord's like, no, you, you've missed it. Yeah, we, we have to ask ourselves, and I, I would ask each of our listeners, have you ever had one of those theological, are you kidding me moments with regard to your relationship with the Lord? And in this case, now, Peter, the, the you know, man who wants to be a hero, wants to wield the sword, wants to bring the kingdom about, but he wants to do it in his own way, is is shocked to discover that the Lord is not on board with his plan. Has that ever happened to us? I, I, I yeah. think perhaps so. I want to just draw one other quick uh, um, lesson from the uh, Last Supper. And that was, uh, just to remind you, because it'll come back, when the Lord wanted to stoop down and wash the disciples' feet. Right. Remember? And what does Peter say? No, no, not my mm-hmm. feet. You're not going to do that to me. And that, Lord, you're the king. You're the, you're the savior. You're humbling yourself before me. I'm not going to put up with that. And the Lord says, if you don't allow me to wash you, you have no part in my ministry. You have no part in my work. And what does Peter then say? Peter says... Um, after the Lord says to him, if you don't have a part in, if I don't watch you, you don't have a part of my ministry. Peter's response is, well, then wash my whole body. Right. I and, love that exuberance. Yeah. I, I probably would have said the same thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's okay. I get it now, Lord. You have to wash me. So go ahead. Wash my whole body. And the Lord says, oh, Peter. No, the feet are sufficient. You know, this is a, this is a cleansing of your worldliness, but the feet are sufficient here because the real cleansing, Peter, though he doesn't say this to him, he says it in a few minutes when he later tells him about the denial and the, and the cock crowing. The real cleansing, which the Lord knows about and Peter doesn't, is about to occur in, in, in a few hours' time in the garden. So let's go to that All right, uh, this is lengthy a, scripture verse. Peter's denial in the courtyard. So having arrested Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them, and a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight, and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But Peter denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter, irritated now, said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord. Now, can you imagine that look? 
Francis, or for our listeners. Can you imagine that look? I mean, genuinely, I want you to put yourself in that role. You have just denied the man you've spent three years with, your Lord and Savior, the one you know uh, to have great power and have manifested all these miracles. Can you imagine what Peter must have felt in that very moment? Understand, though, Peter is not betraying Jesus. By his own admission, and what we just heard from, from Francis, Peter does not know Jesus. Peter is actually incurring here a self-inflicted wound. He admits that he is not really familiar with the new character that he sees, this man who's chained and bound and beaten and bloodied. That is not the image that he had of the one who was going to bring about the kingdom. And he's right. Peter does not know this man. So looking Christ directly in the eyes, he saw what? Sympathy, compassion. He saw love. Peter is actually in the second stage of betraying himself. Remember the, are you kidding me moment? This is the self he tried to project both onto his circumstances and also onto Christ. And, and I like to, for us to remember here, this is probably the last living uh, look of the Lord before the crucifixion. Right. So that's also uh, something that's going to play into Peter as, as he ponders this. So, so going back to the principle of the purification of our memory, which is what our conversation is about here, the purification of our memory is essentially the shattering of our expectations about ourselves and most especially about God. Mm -hmm. We have formed an image for ourselves as to what God is and who we are in relationship to him, and what the Lord has to allow. He doesn't do it in this case, but he has to allow. Remember that uh, when the Lord was washing his feet and then later told Peter that he would betray him, the Lord knew exactly what was going to happen in that garden, and he allowed it. This would be defined as God's permissive will. Right. He allowed this to happen. Why? So that Peter could be uh, uh, broken and, and feel humiliated and know um, you know, um, how weak he really was? Well, in essence, yes. That's exactly what our Lord needed Peter to go through. Remember, this is the one he's picked as his leader. And he says to him also, we, we could have related this, he said to Peter at that earlier stage, when you turn back to me, Christ knew that Peter was going to turn away, but he still picked him as his leader. And Why? He, he permits this all for Peter to go through to, for a higher pur purpose, okay? And we're going to get into that a little here. Yeah, Peter is now in what we could call the courtyard of shattered expectations. Remember, earlier Peter laid down his sword um, and, and uh, um, accepted that the Lord was not going to bring it about that way. Now Peter's in, tr in transition through a stage of what can only be referred to as disillusionment. Right, it I'm isn't just, now I've, I, I've been asked to lay down my sword, okay, Fine, you have a different approach, you'll, you'll manifest your power later. No, 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 you're going to see me chain, whip, bound, and I'm going to look you directly in the eye, Peter, within moments of your denying me, and Peter experiences disillusionment. And I think we can all look over our journeys in life and find moments where we too felt disillusionment. So Peter's broken, and we too have had that experience of disappointment, um, expectations not being met, disillusionment um, so you know we can really identify with Peter here and we know Peter was not a coward 
Remember the garden. Remember his walking on the water. You know, he was brave enough to he get out there and walk. He was the only one. He was the only one willing yeah. to get out of that boat. Now, he didn't last very long, but he was willing. That's because he took his eyes off the Lord. We, and that's we, the whole thing. We also have to say something else here. You know, Peter was not a bad person who just wanted power. He didn't He didn't just, you know, want to uh, uh, take on a, a big role here. Uh, he might have been a rough character. We know that. We know he was probably a little bit of a roustabout. I mean, in fairness, uh, even at that time, you have to be a bit of a tough character to be willing to unsheathe the sword against a hundred men. <laughs> so Peter's no uh, uh, no pansy here. Um, and and uh, having seen uh, Simon Peter, um, and, and remember too, I'm sorry, remember that Peter's early encounter with our Lord he acknowledges, he knows that he's a sinful character. Luke 5, 8, uh, when he first encounters Jesus, he says, Depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is after the Lord had introduced himself and called Peter by name. Uh, Peter had already gone through his conversion. So many of us, Francis, we've gone through our conversion. But now he needed to go through this process of disillusionment, of the breaking of his expectations. This is the purification of the memory. Remember, too, we do not deny Jesus in these moments. Rather, what we do is we conclude that we don't know him. And how many of us have said that? Lord, why are you acting this way? Why are you letting these things happen to me? Why have these circumstances presented themselves in this way? I don't know you. We say exactly the same thing Peter did. And it doesn't mean that we deny Christ necessarily. We're denying ourselves or denying our own expectations as to what we thought Christ was all about. Now, had Peter walked across that courtyard, uh, Francis, laid his head on Jesus' bosom, as John had done earlier, embraced Jesus, as Jesus had done in the garden to those gray souls we talked about, and rejected in that moment everything that was surging in his confused mind. In other words, silencing all of his own perception. If he'd simply looked Jesus in the eye with a silent look and said, Lord, I love you, Peter would have been instantly healed like the souls in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he did not. Instead, Scripture tells us, Peter went out and wept bitterly. This is the second cleansing. Yes. His feet were cleansed, but now begins the process of healing his soul. Peter ran away because he couldn't bear the burden of the realization that in fact he had to deny himself in order to understand who Jesus was. This actually harkens back to a, a wonderful poem um, that, that is used so often in, in teaching about a Christian principles. Francis Thompson, I won't go through, through his background, but um, he died a very faithful Catholic after a great deal of struggle in his, uh, quite frankly, running away from the Lord most of his life. Um, the speaker in this poem, we'll just read a very brief section of it, um, and it's called The Hound of Heaven. He pursues by his divine grace those upon whom, like Peter, he bestows his love. If you run, the poem says, he will chase you, he will pursue you. And Francis Thompson in this poem describes this chase. He begins, and this was Peter, uh, at times perhaps us. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinth labyrinthine ways of my own mind and in the midst of tears I hid from him an underrunning laughter. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens you are there. If I make my bed in the depths 
you are there. And that was from that last four lines was from Psalm 139. The uh, the end of the third sequence of this poem, I don't want to go through all of it, uh, but capture the main theme that, that Francis Thomas is, is trying to emphasize, reads, Lo, not contents thee, who contentest not me, being in his presence, again, silently, in the night, embracing him, being in his presence is all we need. Again, God speaking in this poem, if you don't content yourself in the presence of God, then nothing will ever make you content. He's speaking again to those of us who are chosen objects of his grace. And towards the end of this poem, having established this pattern of God's voice delivering the final lines of each poetic sequence, Thompson delivers the final three lines in the words of God, or who he refers to as the hound of heaven. Ah, fondest, blindest, weakest, I am he whom thou seekest. Thou dravest love from me, who dravest me. Now, dravest is an ancient term, archaic. I was going to ask you what <laughs> that meant. Drove away, drove away. Okay. Uh, drove away love from me, and uh, who, who drove away thee. In other words, the Lord is saying, Francis Thompson here is saying, if you drive me away, you're driving love away. You're driving it from yourself. He's speaking to the running, those of us who are running from God, the weakest, the blindest, uh, those who cannot see that God's love um, wants them and he wants to shower this love on them. But they don't find their, the, the love they're seeking because they reject God, the one that they've created in their own mind. And God is saying, you drove away the capacity of love from yourself because you drove away love f uh, away from you, which is me. In other words, where we began in the earliest part of this conversation we want to find ourselves acceptable in the world, and we do it by seeking to have people validate us. What Christ is saying is, when I validate you, when I am the one who you seek in the night, who you seek in silence, and who you embrace, you will know that you are loved regardless of who you are. Remember that look that Francis talked to us about that the Lord showered on Peter moments after his denial. In the midst of that um, betrayal, Jesus expresses nothing but compassion and love. When Peter knows that, his first experience, as it will be for us, is to be broken by it. But we're going to discover in a few minutes here, it will be the process of his healing. The so, message is clear. Yeah. Don't run away from God. Yeah, because he loves you. So, And I keep coming back to that line of St. Elizabeth of the Trinity. Let yourself be loved. I think this really gets to that point because God wants to shower his graces on you. And of course, we're in Holy Week. And so the, lots of graces are flowing. So open your hearts and souls to the Lord because the Lord wants to shelter you and protect you, to heal you. But if we keep running away from him, then we'll never receive the good blessings God has in store for us. I wonder what the next few days were like for yeah. Peter, Francis, the depth right. of his purification. In the silence of his own dark night, which happened very quickly for Peter because the Lord had some work for him to do, Peter's forced to face himself. And of course, we know uh, Christ would not let Peter flee forever. Christ would not allow Peter's own sword, uh, that which he wielded in a material way, but really his desire to project himself on the world. It wouldn't allow Peter, uh, the Lord would not allow Peter to inflict an eternal mortal wound for his soul. In fact, Peter's sword, his gift, would be important to Jesus once it could be perfected to God's will. Because only hours before this, Jesus has spoken these words to Peter. I have prayed for thee 
that thy faith may not fail. And when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. Yeah, we mentioned this earlier. This is uh, Peter's, uh, if you will, um, you know, being um, uh, brought into his full mission. He will be the leader. And it is for that reason that we can well imagine the Lord allowed Peter to have this experience, to go through his dark night, to stumble and fall. And don't misunderstand, um, Peter's uh, circumstances, though profoundly painful, are not the final purification for Peter. Remember later in the gospel, in, in the letters rather, we're going to read about his interactions with Paul and the mm -hmm. disagreement. So there's a continual process in our life of humiliation, purification, uh, and, and maturing into uh, understanding what it is that God wants us to do, even for someone as close to our Lord as Peter himself was. But you see, Peter was a leader of men. His sword had not been converted to the use of the kingdom, but his sword was going to be used by the kingdom. His courage, his willingness to, uh, to, to take on a leadership role um, serves initially as an Achilles heel, but once it's perfected, it becomes the source of his strength. So oftentimes, Francis, I'm asked this in spiritual direction and in other forums, I'm sure you are as well. People say, well, if this analogy that Paul draws of I no longer live, but now Christ lives in me, well, what's left of me? everything that you were. <laughs> right. Your swords are now brought to bear in the way that they should be. Your talent as a musician, your ability to speak, your leadership skills, whatever they may be, your compassion as a mother and as a, as a caregiver, all of those are now perfected. They're not diminished by Christ's assumption of, of, of you, the human person. In fact, they are brought to perfection in you as a result of it. In fact, St. Thomas Aquinas says grace perfects nature so we can ponder that grace perfects nature it does not destroy it and christ needed peter's sword to serve but not in the manner that peter thought um, but he does uh, grow uh, and he the holy spirit comes and enlightens him and helps him and and teaches him and so uh, then peter's sword will be used for good now we said in our first conversation this isn't going to be a walk uh, you know through sort of a deliberate series of uh, the purification of intellect, memory, will. We're talking only here about memory. Uh, but St. Teresa in the interior castles uh, does uh, say something very important in the sixth dwelling place, actually in chapter 7, um, that I think uh, has some pertinence here for us where she discusses the suffering soul's experience and what a great mistake it is not to keep the humanity of Christ present in one's mind. And then she relates uh, an important lesson for us. No relief is afforded this suffering by the thought that our Lord has already pardoned and forgotten the sins. So I'm t we're talking here about Peter. Peter is aware that Christ has forgiven him because he saw that in the look. This is the more painful aspect of Peter's experience. If the Lord had sort of looked at him angrily, Peter might have been able to get his own <laughs> anger up and say, well, the heck with it. You turned out not to be who you said you were. But in fact, he's everything he said he was, Christ is. He looks at Peter with compassion. And Teresa goes on to emphasize the point we're making here. Rather, it adds to the suffering to see so much goodness and realize that favors are granted to one who deserves nothing but hell. Somebody actually had a conversation with me about this very thing um, 24 hours ago. So um, it's really um, something that we can really uh, ponder in our life's journey. Well, there's another um, story that we want to just quickly uh, touch on that I think also gives us a good example of this idea 
of the purification of the memory. And it's uh, used here because it's from a, a, a movie that many of us are perhaps familiar with. If not, I really encourage you to go and watch this. It's a wonderful film. It's called The Mission. It stars uh, Robert De Niro. Um, and, and it gives us a good perspective on this death that must occur, a series of them actually, and the great risk we run if we don't allow this to happen and seek the healing that Peter is now in the midst of awaiting. Um, the main character here, played by De Niro, is a Rodrigo Mendoza. He's a slave trader and inadvertently, but nonetheless, uh, kills his brother, his younger brother, finds him with um, uh, Mendoza's own um, lover and uh, they end up in a sword battle, and he kills his brother. This all occurs, by the way, in uh, Argentina. Um, he wants then, like uh, Judas, our friend, uh, Mendoza, that is, wants to kill himself. But instead, in going to a uh, Catholic mission, uh, he accepts the invitation of a Father Gabriel, played by Jeremy Irons in the movie, who invites him on a pilgrimage, and and, and instructs him to load all of the material, if you will, of his former life to be carried on a back. So his sword, his armor, his, uh, his leggings and so forth, all of the stuff that were part of um, his slave trade, and he, he um, was a, a warrior of, of sorts in that regard, um, and all of that which is most prominent from that period of his life. Now, as they begin to make their way up the river and eventually disembark and begin to climb, they're going on a pilgrimage up to one of the villages. One of the villages, ironically, uh, where Mendoza himself used to go and, and uh, capture uh, candidates for, um, again, di disembarking and beginning to make their way up the slopes to this, uh, this village, if you will. Um, Mendoza in the muddy, slippery, uh, water-covered slopes, falls, and he falls back about 40 yards or so. Now, uh, a father, John Fielding, who's also in the group, uh, played by Liam Neeson, by the way, he rushes back to Mendoza's uh, location, and in his mind, enough is enough. This uh, penance that uh, Father Gabriel had imposed on Mendoza uh, for him, for uh, Father Fielding, has reached um, its conclusion. And so he takes out his sword and he cuts the rope that was strapped around uh, Robert De Niro's, uh, Mendoza's shoulder and, and allows the, uh, the netting, if you will, that was the source of uh, packaging all this up to flow back down uh, some distance further on the, the mountain slope. Uh, Father Gabriel then says to Father Fielding, let him do it. Um, his pride, uh, Father Gabriel understands, is not ready uh, to be let go. Uh, Mendoza's pride, that is. Now, what's happening here is that Rodrigo is going to decide on his own, much like our friend Peter, when he is worthy of letting this uh, this the load, uh, the heavy net, load, the heavy all load, the all his burdens. Exactly <laughs> right. This is what we do in our life, listeners. We acquire all these burdens from our sins. The burdens themselves, I will tell you, are nothing but our infidelity to the Lord. Nothing but our sl slight as they may be, but nonetheless, uh, denying the Lord. Uh, and we package them up and we carry them through life, and they become an 
onerous burden on us. And we will decide, as is happening with Peter, having run out of the garden in the night, we will decide when we have sufficiently uh, sort of purified ourselves. So let's go on with our story. Um, now, one of these, um, the, the party begins uh, again. Mendoza straps the, the package on, and he enters uh, the, the courtyard, ultimately, uh, of the uh, location where the slave trading had gone on, um, where they, in fact, had captured uh, some of the uh, um, members of that tribe and enslaved them. As they enter the courtyard, one of the slave warriors recognizes, immediately recognizes Mendoza. And Mendoza, having come into the camp, uh, falls because of the weight and the oppression of his, his package, his burden. And he's just kneeling there in a rain-drenched, muddy pool. And this warrior approaches him and he unsheathes his own sword, much like our friend Peter did in the garden. And he places the sword at the neck of Mendoza. He knows him. He knows that this is a man who very likely took relatives of this, of this uh, member of this tribe. And he looks then to the uh, chief of the tribe. And some words are uttered in a language that is not um, uh, translated for the listener, the watcher of the movie. And instead of slitting the throat of the warrior, uh, of Mendoza, the slave trader, the warrior removes the sword from Mendoza's neck, reaches back, and like Father Fielding before him, cuts the rope that bound Mendoza to his burden of sin, everything associated with his former life. And he pushes it over the cliff, uh, a very high cliff at this point. They've reached the top of the, uh, of the climb where the uh, camp is, and, uh, or where the village is. And he pushes it over, and it falls into the rushing river and is washed downstream. At that moment, Mendoza looks up into the eyes of this warrior, and much like Peter, he sees rather than anger or uh, recrimination or um, you know a desire to inflict pain, he sees compassion. He sees forgiveness. And Mendoza leans over in this muddy pool and he just weeps. He just weeps at what he has experienced. Now I will say to you that one of these two men has just freed himself from the memories that enslaved him. Remember, the memories of the tribal warrior are the uh, taking of his uh, family and friends. The memories of Mendoza are his sins. But only one of these two has just freed himself from those memories. Let's go on. Those of you who know the film will also know that Rodrigo ultimately will pick up his sword again. You see, uh, uh, in the Hollywood version of this, a young boy... Uh, scampers down the cliff and down the river and he finds the sword and many many uh, uh, months later um, he brings it back to Rodrigo. Now Father, uh, what, what happens here, uh, again those of you who know the film will be familiar with the fact that um, this experience for uh, the villagers was a great challenge. The uh, Spanish actually had designs on recapturing uh, the slave trade and re-engaging the slave trade in this part of the world. And in response to that, uh, Mendoza, 
again played by Robert De Niro, decides that rather than just accept this, he's going to raise a, a, a mini army, if you will, of these uh, natives, and he's going to combat uh, this uh, assault by the Spanish troops. And so he um, trains them and uh, sort of engages them in preparation for what ultimately is an attack on the village. And in the midst of that attack, um, there is a great deal of bloodshed and, and, and a great deal of chaos. Uh, many of the warriors, many of the tribal warriors do end up dying. And in fact, um, uh, it's such a violent attack, they're unleashing cannon fire uh, on the tiny village. Rodrigo, uh, having picked up his sword and killing many of the, uh, the troops that are assaulting the village, ultimately is felled by cannon fire and drops uh, in the middle of the, uh, uh, of the courtyard. Now, what's interesting is uh, Mendoza played by De Niro, had chosen rather than the path chosen by Father Gabriel, which was prayer uh, and, and the saying of the Mass, Mendoza said, no, I'm going to revert back to my worldly ways. I'm going to pick up my sword again, and I'm going to fight this onslaught in the best way that I know how, which is uh, as a warrior, as, a, as, a, as somebody who wields a sword. And ultimately, uh, Mendoza dies. Uh, in the middle of that courtyard, his blood running out uh, into the mud and into the rain. Father Gabriel, however, chooses to hold a mass in the church in the middle of the village. And in fact, at the end of that mass uh, begins a Eucharistic procession. He picks up the monstrance following the mass and exits the back of the church and begins to walk through the center of the village. Now, I will tell you that Father Gabriel is also killed. Um, there's no limit to the assault uh, on the village, and so uh, our priest is also killed. He dies while leading this procession. The difference, however, in the two experiences is that no one comes to pick up Rodrigo's cru cru uh, crusader sword. It lays there in the blood, mixed with the mud of the earth. But one of the village children does pick up the monstrance as it drops from the hand of Father Gabriel and continues the Eucharistic procession into the dark jungle. Now, history records that that particular tribe, in fact, um, exists to this day, and many of them still practice the Catholic faith. So the question is, which of the approaches of the two priests, and by the way, Rodrigo had become a priest himself, uh, Mendoza had become a priest, which of the two priests' approaches was the more appropriate to the assault uh, on, on the village? Uh, I'll leave it to our leader to decide. Now, the end of our pilgrimage is not a garden, either Gethsemane uh, or a mountaintop, Mount Carmel. It's actually a beach by the sea. Um, and I want to pick up on a, a, a quote that Francis uh, said earlier. In fact, I'm going to allow her to reread it and just reiterate where this comes from. Well, it's a letter from St. Elizabeth of the Trinity to Mother Germain, where she explains exactly what it is that Christ wants from us. She says, Mother, I bequeath to you this vocation, which was mine in the heart of the church militant. Mother, let yourself be loved more than these. So what we are coming to then is Peter's purification. Remember, uh, 
Mendoza ended in a worldly way. Father Gabriel ended with a procession. And Peter now is coming out of his moment of disillusionment, his perhaps despair, certainly the realization that he has um, uh, denied the Lord. And you'll remember the story after the Lord has risen, so we're past Easter now, and some time later, uh, Peter and the disciples are on a beach. They've done their fishing. They're making a breakfast, and they see... I'm sorry, they're in, they're in the boat, and, and they see on the beach... Uh, Jesus a making man, breakfast. <laughs> a character, yeah, making breakfast. And Peter immediately realizes who it is, and he jumps in the water off the boat... Now, Peter, remember, this is the guy who was afraid when he started sinking in the water that night that the Lord invited him to walk on the water. So we know, he, like many sailors, by the way, he's not crazy about water. <laughs> but he jumps into the water and he rushes to the shoreline and um, he embraces the Lord. He knows that it is the Lord. I'll let and you Jesus up. says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, and this is John the Apostle, because as you, as you had mentioned earlier, Mark, the crusader always comes after the hermit. So the prayer first. Uh, the action comes after the prayer. So prayer, then the uh, action. Do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, looking at the water he just crossed, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus then said to him, Let yourself be loved. Now, again, we're, we're <laughs> using the analogy back to uh, uh, St. Elizabeth's words. Of course, Peter says to him, um, I, I'm sorry, our, our Lord said to him, um, you know, do, do you love me? And, okay, yeah, sorry, what, we had a little, yeah, <laughs> we had what, that pause there for a second. What, what Peter, of course, uh, actually hears is feed my sheep, but, but we want to use this analogy. What, what for, leads to Peter's church. healing yeah. is this understanding that Jesus loves him. Right, and so that's why um, we read Let Yourself Be Loved because we want to, uh, help us to identify with uh, Jesus saying, feed my sheep, uh, that Peter is receiving the love of the Lord. Now Jesus said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter, now looking, uh, and again back to our uh, narrative, looking at Christ's feet, looking at his hands, looking at his head. He sees, by the way, no armor, uh, none of the armor that Rodriguez would have borne up that mountain or used in his slave trading or ultimately used to bring about his own demise. He sees none of that in Christ. He sees the wounded hands, the wounded side, the wounded head. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, let yourself be loved. Jesus said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now Peter becomes grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And remember Peter's becoming uh, frustrated, angry in the garden the third time he was asked this question. Well, here Peter is grieved. And he said to him, looking directly into our Lord's eyes, the thing he did that very night after he had betrayed him and that led him to weep and rush out of the garden, Peter's response, Lord, you know all things. Indeed, the word of God is living. And if these are not Peter's words, I'm just... Uh, drawing on scripture, the word of God is living, effective, sharper than any two-edged sword, penetrating both soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and able to discern reflections and thoughts of the heart. Peter going on, you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, let yourself be loved. And then he says, 
tend my sheep. Here we have finally in Peter heart-to-heart communication. It has begun to sink into Peter's heart. Yes, Peter, you know that I, that I know rather that you love me. And now you must forget everything that came before. For now, Peter, you too are now convinced yourself that you love me. You see, by looking Jesus directly in the eyes, Peter is experiencing a self-inflicted healing. What happened to him in the garden when Peter tried to wield his sword, he was chastised by Jesus. What happened to him in the courtyard when he denied Jesus is he had a self-inflicted wound. And now looking Jesus in the eye and knowing what he's hearing in his interior is this expression of Jesus, let yourself be loved, Peter, leads to a self-inflicted healing. So the only thing that will allow us to love ourselves is to discover that regardless of the degree of our woundedness, our brokenness, our past, we will always have the capacity to love. That is our choice. And to receive the love. And Christ reveals that to us. So you see, Peter always did love Jesus. You know, when uh, he said to Jesus, go away from me, I'm I'm a simple man. man. Or he walked on the, the water or... You know, uh, no, Lord, not you. We're not going to let them take you. Um, and, you know, what was transpiring in the garden. So we we do know Peter was willing to die for the Lord. Um, but one interpretation of this is that he wanted to die a hero's death, uh, one of his own choosing, like the earthly one that Rodrigo Mendoza chose. But instead, Peter would ultimately die a hero's death, but not in the way that he thought. And in fact, he, he died upside down on the cross because he did not feel like he could die in the same manner, being crucified upright like our Lord. So we have now the Lord saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this Jesus said, signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. So it wasn't Peter's choice, but he now accepts um, the providence of God's hand. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to him, now follow me. From that point on, Peter's leadership gifts, his skills, his faculties, they've all been transformed into the will of the Lord. Again, they're not fully purified even at this point, but they have become uh, conformed in a way that the Lord can begin to use them. Here's what John of the Cross says about this particular state that Peter had been elevated to. God now possesses the faculties as their complete Lord because of their transformation in him. And consequently, it is he who divinely moves and commands them according to his divine spirit and will. So what heals our memory is Christ's love and our ever-increasing capacity to return that love to Christ and to those around us, to our brothers and sisters. Well, this happens when we stop trying to control matters and realize that what is worthy of love in all of us is our own will's capacity to love, and it is all gift. So then the question remains, to what degree do we love, and how do we increase our capacity for this gift of love? And so we can turn to 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, 
we all, with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. And this is nothing other than adoration. Right. That's what it is. In adoration, in the night, in silence, we increasingly see in Christ's eyes, if we look to him. By the way, yesterday was Shrove Tuesday, <laughs> the holy face. Um, looking into our Lord's eyes, the very image of Christ that resides within each of us, that image is the only one that we will find worthy of love, and it is the only way that we ourselves will find ourselves worthy of love. Elizabeth of the Trinity has a wonderful quote here, and I want to just uh, read it and, and again reiterate our three means of navigation that we've been talking about throughout our conversation. She says, We will be glorified in the measure in which we will have been conformed to the image of his divine Son. So let us contemplate this adored image resting in the bosom of the Lord. Again, that's the analogy. Let us remain unceasingly under its radiance so that it may imprint itself on us, embracing our Lord in the night, in the garden. Let us go to everything with the same attitude of soul that our holy master would have. Silently, Christ went to his cross silently. Then we will realize the great plan by which God has revealed, uh, has resolved in himself to restore all things in Christ. And of course, that's taken right from Ephesians 1.10. So you referred earlier that uh, although we're talking about navigating um, this life uh, for the soul's journey, uh, we're not talking about the tour of the seven mansions that St. Teresa of Avila talks about. But it's important to know what we can expect to encounter at the end of our pilgrimage in the center of our soul. So I want to bring up from the seventh dwelling place, the seventh mansion, chapter 2, um, it's, you know, there near the end of the pilgrimage as far as um, uh, what she writes about. Uh, but we are always uh, learning and growing and maturing. But we read this from Teresa. The Lord puts the soul in this dwelling of his, which is the center of the soul itself. In the soul that enters here, there are none of the movements that usually take place in the faculties and the imagination and that do harm to the soul nor do these movements take away its peace. She goes on, everything is such that this soul doesn't know or recall that there will be heaven or life or honor for it because it employs all it has in procuring the honor of God. The second effect is that the soul has a great desire to suffer, but not the kind of desire that disturbs it as previously. And I, I think of St. Teresa of the Lizzo, um, the little flower saying, I desire neither suffering nor death, yet I love both. Uh, but it is abandonment to love alone that attracts me. I have no other compass. Drawing back to our navigational, navigational analogy. Tools. So I have no other compass but love. And, and isn't it true of Peter's life and certainly Paul and all of the disciples that they would suffer after Christ's departure? It isn't as though we get to the seventh mansion and life becomes, you know, uh, all uh, a bed of roses, what it in fact becomes is our ability to express our love for the Lord, and that's often found through suffering. So my question then to our listeners, is anyone suffering? Perhaps some souls are so weighed down by their misguided perception of ourselves that we can't even imagine walking. But we must place our heads on Christ's bosom and look into his eyes. Some souls are exhausted from carrying memories in huge bundles like our friend Rodrigo did. We must find Christ in the night and reveal our deepest selves to him and allow him to heal us like those gray souls that we talked about. Some are walking slowly and painfully down a path of disillusionment with tears in their eyes like Peter. 
Those folks must silence the exterior voices, live exclusively in the interior, and let Christ speak to their heart. The only way we can be sure of Jesus' love for us is to know deep down in the center of our soul that we did absolutely nothing to be worthy of it. This is true. This is a hard lesson, but it's the truth. And there's nothing we can do to lose it, which is an even more important truth. Right. We cannot make ourselves worthy of Christ's love. And we will not be love ourselves until we understand that we are capable of loving. This is a spiritually adult way of understanding love, that love comes from knowing that we are love. That's right from Scripture, by the way. Well, yeah, from 1 Corinthians 3, 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we see only a reflection, as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So love perfects our will simply by our gazing at its perfect image and becoming love itself. The only thing Jesus is asking from us is the very thing he himself first gave us. We love because he first loved. That changed the world, our hermit friend from earlier, if you recall, the hermit who the crusader chased up into the mountains and eventually entered his camp, needs to, that hermit needs to have a crusader spirit, which is transformed by love. Think of Mendoza, the crusader who became uh, subject to his own desires for earthly expression, and think of our friend Peter, who when the crusader spirit of him was purified, it served the Lord's purposes. Each one of us then, coming right from our own rule, remaining alone in ourselves, meditating on the Lord's law day and night, and keeping watch and prayer, and less attending to some other duty. What's this other duty, Francis? To change the world, as St. Teresa did. But this is the call to all of us, all of us here. And I believe the eternal fate of many souls rests on our saying yes to the Lord, our fiat. You know, at the end of her life, Mother Teresa is famous for having... Uh, uttered these words. And, and this in fact, is St. Teresa of Avila. Yeah, Teresa of Avila. And it was the uh, a theme, of course, of our Congress last year. It is time to walk. Um, it, and it indicates our responsibility uh, to lead us to struggle with this question. What is our motivation? Why do we uh, continue in this pilgrimage, this journey through uh, our life? Well, Christ makes this answer very clear to us. You did not choose me. I chose you. So he takes the lead in everything that we do and we need to allow him to take the lead. You see when our solitary hermit, that hermit from the first conversation, and again you'll have to go back make sure to listen to the first program. Thinking of um, Mount Carmel and Elijah when we were talking about all that. Was in contemplation, this hermit was in contemplation before that crusader that we talked about wandered into the camp. The Holy Spirit whispered a silent prayer deep in the interior of the hermit's heart. It was directed toward a man dressed in armor and still covered in blood, mud, and the passions of the world. But it was also for those who would come after this crusader, including each and every one of us. The hermit was led to understand that he would receive a visitor in the night, but he also saw a much deeper and more profound aspect of the condition of his visitor's soul. After all, as we read earlier, the contemplative life is the most profound life of all, the truest life. So the hermit saw clearly through his prayer 
all the assault, assaults that this soul had endured during its life. And where most see only another person's shield or breastplate or sword, the solitary hermit saw much, much more. He saw the crusader's shield would be muddied with the memories of regret and desire to recover its past glory. The hermit saw that the crusader's breastplate would be filthy with fear and favor. He had plans uh, that, that for himself uh, and had devised for himself how things would turn out in his life. All of this, the hermit understand, would be inflamed by four unchecked passions, which Elizabeth of the Trinity talked to us about. And the full consequences would be seen in the blood on his armor and his sword. A sword engraved with the phrase, The desire to show others and myself that I am worthy of being loved. This solitary hermit understood in his heart how he must teach this soldier of Christ to apply the only remedy that would heal his broken and wounded soul. He would provide him with the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Above all, he said, looking into the crusader's eyes, live in love, abide in love. You see, if we're going to be healed, listeners, and enabled to heal the world, we must, like this hermit, remain silently in ourselves day and night and allow ourselves to be loved. Each of us, then, will be able to fulfill our duty, which is nothing less than to become, for this dark world of shadows, a perpetual Eucharistic procession. Yeah. It is time for us to walk out into the world like our uh, patron, St. Teresa of Avila, and begin to change the world, not of ourselves, not wielding our earthly swords, but wielding the sword of the Spirit, the one given to us by the And that love, yes. I'm sorry, I, I jumped in. No, on quite all right. <laughs> I got excited. You're absolutely right. <laughs> well, we are a little bit over time. I apologize for the length of our conversation. It's been a good one, and we appreciate uh, this opportunity. And I'm going to just ask Frances if she wouldn't mind closing us in prayer. And again, this is from St. Raphael Kalinowski, a discast Carmelite priest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we entrust our task to our Most Holy Mother, the Virgin Mary, under her maternal care. If there is anything to correct, let it be corrected once and for all. May the good that is done continue to increase. Toward this purpose, may God's love flood our souls along this earthly life and finally lead us to the fountain of love, that is, to God himself in eternity. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Well, thank you again. We ask uh, that all of you take some time this week to be in adoration, be silent before the Lord, and if you are able, pray in the middle of the night. This is uh, uh, the most important time of the year. Again, we are doing this in Holy Week, and this is the time to acquire the graces that we all need to help transform the world in which we live. And we invite you both to uh, uh, do that this week and, and every week of the year, but also we ask you to be back with us next week. Uh, take the opportunity and join us in our Carmelite conversations. God bless.